the Sunday Night Hell Show podcast. Set your clocks back 50 years, ladies. Roe v. Wade has been reversed. The Supreme Court has just changed America, the land of the free. Men, that is. Burning, urgency, frequency. Yes, urinary tract infections are brutal and they affect both women and men. And tongue rings may have their place in the bedrooms with pleasure. But chomp on some downsides tonight. And guess who just got diagnosed with migraines? You guessed it. Yours truly. Find out what I have to do next. What is Hep C and why do we need to eliminate it by 2030? The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Bada bing. It's not that COVID is gone or the pandemic is over by any stretch of the imagination. And in fact, with the variants this summer, we are expecting a big surge. But we have given Dr. Kinderchuk the night off tonight. Um, so hopefully he's enjoying that. But also, we are, I, just, I, I did have a guest actually tonight, um, but they had to cancel because they are suffering with long COVID. Long COVID clinics are springing up all over the place because I think about 33% is what the latest figures that I saw of people who have contracted COVID-19 have symptoms of long COVID. And also reinfections are becoming the norm. People are getting infected two, three, and four times later. Anyway, we are going to shift gears a little south tonight um, to talk about why the protesters took to the streets across the U.S. after the you, after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Leo, how are you doing tonight? Yeah. Hi, Maureen. Hey, I'm doing good hey. here. I was uh, away here from the building after 10 days on health and safety protocols. Oh, but I'm glad really? to be back. Yeah. I'm so glad you're uh, back. How yeah. are you feeling? Yeah. Well, fresh and you fine. You feeling good? Yep. Good. Ready to go. No, no symptoms longstanding? Nope. Not at all. That's excellent. I did a rock. Good to know. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, Well, we've got, we had big disappointment this weekend. I'm tremendously disappointed and disgusted, quite frankly, that Roe v. Wade has been overturned uh, as somebody who is passionate about reproductive health um, and and have dedicated a lot of my career to that and to women's health. um, I am just gobsmacked that this has been overturned and it makes you happy enough that you're in Canada, but it also gives people um, cause for concern as well. Um, you know, Leo, just what are your thoughts um, on on this overturning of Roe v. Wade? These three new justices who have decided to <laughs> uh, change a 50-year president, precedent. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, I, I, well, I guess that, that that's quite a decision. Eh? Um. Yeah, it is. It's shocking. And, you know, there's so much shame and stigma to this. This is a woman's private health care, and it relates to um, her privacy. It should be a conversation with, you know, her physician, um, her OBGYN, close family member, close friend, uh, perhaps her intimate partner. Um, you know, so this is not a decision that's taken lightly, but you were, we were talking earlier about what had gone on in Brazil. Uh, yeah, well, there was, there was a similar case I was, I was following because I'm, I'm, I'm from back there too. So um, yeah, there was a similar case. It, it got reported in international media too. It all happened this week. So the case there was, there was this 11 year, 11 year old girl that was raped. And uh, 
she, she got pregnant, and uh, but she got an abortion, which illegally got blocked by uh, uh, by justice. Uh, but eventually, like she got, she got the abortion, and uh, yeah, it was overturned. She got the abortion, but then the president, uh, Mr. Bolsonaro, who's a very far right uh, president, he even tweeted out this week on the twenty third that that's what he says, like a uh, seven month, like like. Uh, um, yeah, seven month baby, uh, you know, two months away from birth. Yeah, you you don't discuss the form it was generated, if if it's not backed up by law or not. And he finishes saying that it's, you know, it's. Uh, I mean, it's inconceivable to take the life away from this, uh, the this child that can't defend itself. So it's like I I I didn't like that tone at all. It's you know. Well, no, um, not at all. Of a child yeah. who can't defend yeah, themselves like, either. Yes. So <laughs> of an eleven-year-old. Uh, no, um, which is horrifying, yeah. and that's going to be horrible for for that child for the rest of her life, knowing that she was publicly shamed by the president. I mean, it's outrageous. Yeah, it, it is, and uh, uh, yeah, it, it just goes it just goes to show you then um, how there's a. <laughs> Uh, there are a lot of things that they need to get, get improved. Like, well, we are getting we are that much further away from equality. Uh, you know, gender equality is not even within our reach any longer. But I'm very happy that corporate America is responding, and many companies will cover and have been covering travel costs for medical procedures that are not available in the area of the person who is seeking them. So, just to name a few companies, Apple. Fantastic. Um, Dick's Sporting Goods, Disney, Starbucks, JB, JP Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Match Group, Bumble, Alaska Airlines. Now that I know Alaska <laughs> Airlines is um, <laughs> is covering that. Yeah, I'm going to fly Alaska. Um, you know, I'm certain that this is not an exhaustive list and that the list will be growing. They are actually responding to their employees and their shareholders as well. And, um, you know, so I think that is fantastic. And I also feel that we, it's it's upon all of us to donate to organizations like Planned Parenthood or, or another organization that supports women. Uh, you know, I put my money where my mouth is. I donated to an organization called In Our Own Voice, National Black Women's Reproductive Justice Agenda. And um, black women in the U.S. die of maternal causes at nearly three times the rate of white women, according to the CDC. And I implore you to donate to this because this is about healthcare. And if you have a comment or a question about this, I'd love to hear from you. The number to call 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. You can text me there as well. The decision whether or not to birth a child, to bear a child is, is the carry on. It is central to a woman's life, to her well-being, to her dignity. It is a decision she must make for herself. When government controls that decision for her, she is being treated as less than a fully adult human responsible for her own choices. And that is, those are the words of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, God rest her soul. As I said, Roe v. Wade has been overturned. 13 states have already have these so-called trigger laws. What that means is that the, this, um, the being making abortion illegal will take effect as soon as Roe has been struck down and has been struck down already. So 
to get an abortion, pregnant people in these states will then have to, as I mentioned earlier, travel out of their state if they can afford to do that, or they will not be able to have one. And and so that's the critical piece there is that if people will be able to afford um, to travel out in, outside of their state, and what 13-year-old in Alabama is actually going to be able to travel to New York without telling their parents or um, without sharing this with somebody. We now have two Americas when it comes to abortion access. We have the blue America and the red America. Never has America been so polarized. Access versus no access to healthcare. This not only will affect healthcare, this will affect the criminal system, the legal system, politics at every single level especially this year, we have the midterm elections coming up and uh, hopefully people will put their vote where their mouth is. Um, you know, we, for the first time, once again, I should say in, in 50 years, do we have American women living in two different countries in America? You know, some of the basis for this decision was, or the opinion of the Supreme Court, um, many of many of those justices who lied under oath and hopefully they will actually go impeach them or seek to impeach them because I mean, you, you cannot be lying under oath, but some of the opinion involved um, the fact that the court felt that Roe was egregiously wrong because it protected a right that was not included in the text of the constitution. But there are other things that are not included in the text of the constitution either, like contraception, which is what many people fear that this court will be going after next. Uh, also interracial marriage as well. And so, I mean, we are losing freedoms. I say we, I'm American. And, um, you know, for my sisters and friends and daughters and women, I am, I am, I am just outraged. Um, there was a massive protest on Fifth Avenue in New York City on Friday night. Not sure if you saw any of that on social media at all or on the news, but it is on my Instagram. Um, you can go to my Instagram and find that. We do have a caller on the line, which we're going to grab quickly. Brian in Calgary. Hello, Brian. Hi. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm av- absolutely shocked by it, although not surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my feeling is this. If you look at any country that does not provide equality, they're very backwards. One just has to look. I, you know, you start with Afghanistan or any any of these countries that do not allow full participation for women tend to lag behind in terms of productivity, economic activity, social well-being, and social happiness. And so, for me, to say that fifty percent of the population may now start losing rights, and it's not going to stop at abortion. It'll, it eventually no. could it, it eventually could lead to the right to vote. That's how far it could go. And uh, I hundred so percent agree with you. This yeah. is about control. So my, this is about control concern. of women. This yeah. is about control and of women. But what some people are forgetting is that women control the bedroom. <laughs> women actually well, hold the sexual power, but a lot you know, of I, men are forgetting that. I, I was, we used to joke, I'm in the renovation business. We used to joke that if you left it up, the men would still be living in caves. And you know, that I think there's a lot of truth to that. Absolutely. I saw on social media that it said if um, men 
could get pregnant, the abortions would be available at the snack shack on the ninth hole. I thought that was pretty on point as well. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, Brian, so, for your call. Okay. Appreciate you it. Bye. What we have this weekend is just uh, the fallout from this is just shocking. And although we've had lots of protests in the big cities and in some of the blue states, what we need to do is bring those women of the blue state to the red states, because that's where the problem is going to be. That is where there's going to be disproportionate access to abortion. There are so many inequities in maternal health, but just let's get our head around this. We had three new justices all appointed by Donald Trump, one of whom was crying over beers on TV during his, um, so during his proceedings, (laughs) um, who have overturned a 50 year precedent um, after having said that the, um, you know, the, the law was set, um, you know, so allegedly lying during their um, proceedings as well. And so um, that this was settled law. Sorry, that was the term that I was looking for, or the phrase. If you have a comment, question, number to call one 399 98 98 to the disproportionate rate at which women of color are impacted by this decision by the lack of access to um, abortion is what is egregious here. The 700 women die each year due to pregnancy or delivery, delivery complications within the first year after giving birth in the United States of America. There are so many inequities in maternal health and the inequities um, in, in terms of health outcomes impact black women, indigenous folks, L- LGBTQ communities, young people, poor people, those living on low incomes. These are the ones that are going to be deeply impacted and more, more brutally enacted by restricting access to abortion care. And abortion care is health care. It is reproductive health care. The ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, calls abortion an essential component of women's health care. I, I mean, the, the harshness, the horror of this decision is just shocking. The idea that the Constitution doesn't protect a person's decision-making, their, their independence, their ability to uh, have a child, it is childbearing is fundamental. It is, it is basic. And childbearing has a tremendous impact on a person's health and their ability to support themselves and their children. So what we're going to see here, very large health burdens, greater health risks for people who carry pregnancies to term. And we're going to see There are so many more complications from a pregnancy that is brought to term than complications from abortions. This is going to impact a a person or family's finances, and it's going to lead to greater bankruptcies, evictions, um, you know, and, and children are just not going to do as well overall, whether they are the unwanted child or a child who is forced to bear a child. We have a moral obligation to stay woke in this. So be informed and, and uh, stand up, please, and donate. Please donate to a, a good cause. 
talking about uh, an infection that impacts so many women and oftentimes uh, chronically, uh, or women can get recurrent urinary tract infections. But it's not just women who get urinary tract infections. Men get it too. So sorry. Um, anyway, <laughs> it reminds me one time, I was, I, I was assuming that somebody who had a UTI was a woman. And so somebody's, <laughs> I think I'm going to bomb this one, but anyway, somebody came to me and said, so-and-so, somebody here in this organization has a urinary tract infection and um, they need to be treated. Do you think you could get online with a physician and then perhaps arrange an appointment, which I did, but I assumed that it was a woman. There you go. Assuming, you know what that does, um, makes a, you know what out of you and me. But, um, so I said to this person, it was a woman who actually um, told me about the person. And I said, you know, how old is, is this person? Because I'm, I'm very passionate about uh, women being treated appropriately, especially at midlife, especially at menopause. And because oftentimes urinary tract infections are associated with decreased uh, estrogen receptors in the urogenital tract. And um, chew on that one. Um and so I said, you know, oh, so how old is this person? And they said, oh, like 62 or something. And I said, oh, you know, that's, that's fine. I can you know, hook them up with a physician. But, you know, they really should look at um, localized estrogen therapy. They, they really should. <laughs> um, and, and, and my colleague was just like, mm-hmm, yeah, it was a non-medical colleague. And, um, and so I repeatedly said that. I said, you know, it's really important. It's really important because, you know, and they said this person has had infections before. This isn't something new. So they just need, you know, a telehealth. And I kept, you know, going on about the localized estrogen therapy. And then in walks the person with the UTI <laughs> and says, you know, what time is my appointment with the doctor? And then I looked over at my friend and I said, yeah the estrogen. No, don't, we don't need to worry about that. Anyway, it was a guy who had a UTI, but so guys do get UTIs and, and, um, it's an infection, any part of your urinary system. So your kidneys, your ureter, your bladder, your urethra, but mostly the infections involve the lower urinary tract, which is the bladder and the urethra. And believe me, they are killers. (laughs) Believe you me. Um, women are at greater risk of developing a UTI than men are in part because we have a shorter urethra. Um, but these infections can be so painful and so annoying. If you've ever had one, you know what I am talking about. And you can also experience serious consequences if the UTI spreads to your kidneys. And for somebody like me, I, I had a kidney stone about four or five years ago. And so I drink so much water uh, to try to prevent that. Although I actually had unnecessary surgery <laughs> um, because I, I was very, very sick with it probably had something else which went undiagnosed. Um, but I was hospitalized actually for eight nights in the special care observation unit because I was hypoxic. So my oxygen levels went low. I was also vomiting blood. I said to the nurse, I was vomiting in the sink (laughs) and I saw the blood and I said, I'm vomiting blood. And she said, no, you're not. And, and then it just swirled down the sink and I'm like, okay, maybe I'm not. I was on morphine. Then I vomited blood again. And I said, I think that's blood. She said, no, no, it's not. I'm like, no, I think it is. Anyway, but I was vomiting blood. Unrelated perhaps, or or it could have been a gastritis is what I was told at the time. 
as well. But um, I also was given morphine. The pain was brutal. It is related to urinary tract infections, but the pain was so brutal. I was in the emergency department and a friend of mine was the eMERGE physician. And I said, you know, they're not giving me enough morphine. I can tell, like I'm in so much pain. And he walked out and <laughs> said, he has an Australian accent and I'll just do a really bad imitation. Um, Why aren't you giving Maureen some morphine? And they said, well, and they answered him. And then he said, killer. You're never going to kill her. That one's going down talking. <laughs> Give her the morphine. Thankfully, they gave me more morphine, but I ended up staying in the hospital eight nights. And then I had, just before I went to the operating room, I felt that the th- uh, thorn had been removed from the lion's paw. And I, I thought, I don't have the pain anymore. Can I please tell somebody? But I was on morphine. And so I couldn't really express myself properly. And so they ended up doing the surgery and I heard the surgeon say, there's nothing there, an expletive, and then there's nothing there. Nonetheless, one day we'll talk about medical errors, which are, are very common. But nonetheless, urinary tract infections can come on very rapidly. You can have them uh, during pregnancy, postpartum, and perimenopause, menopause, many different times um, when you're on birth control, after sex. Um, so oftentimes, um, I mean, this is just really, really awful. But there are some things that you can do to prevent getting a UTI in the first place. Um, But some of the symptoms I wanted to go through, first of all, like cut out your bladder irritants, that might help. Localized estrogen therapy, that might help as well. Um, You know, voiding after sex helps a lot of women, even though there's no evidence to support that in the medical literature, a lot of women will say that is very beneficial um, for them. Symptoms of UTIs are strong, persistent urge to urinate, burning, frequency. You might void frequently, but only pass small amounts of urine. Your urine may look cloudy. It might be red. There might be some blood in it. It might actually be pink or um, kind of a darker red. Um, Strong smelling, foul scent. You can have pelvic pain. You can have abdominal pain. You can have back pain. And uh, and so, but they, they should be treated very very quickly and, you know, appropriately. So it's, it's not, it's very good. Um, it's not very good not to notify your doctor. Um, but different types of urinary tract infections present with different types of symptoms. So if it's in the kidneys, for example, you might get back pain or high fever, shaking and chills. Um, in the bladder, you might get pelvic pressure, low abdominal discomfort, frequent painful urination or blood in the urine. Uh, and if you have urethritis, so an infection in the urethra, you might get burning with urination or discharge. I think I've had them all. Anyway, um, so bacteria enters the urinary tract through the urethra, and that's why um, we get urinary tract infections. And then the the bacteria multiplies in the bladder. Um, you know, sometimes the defenses in the bladder fail. So you might have cystitis, which is usually caused by E. coli. That's why it's important to wipe from front to back after you have voided. You can also, as I mentioned, get um, an infection after sexual intercourse, but you don't have to be sexually active to develop uh, a bladder infection. All women are at risk of cystitis because of the anatomy. And as I mentioned, the, the short urethra. Urethritis is brutal as well. It causes that burning. And that's when your gastrointestinal bacteria spread from the anus to the urethra. Um, so very important, again, um, hand washing, wipe from the front to the back as well. 
um, certain types of birth control will raise your risk. And also after menopause, that decline in the circulating estrogen can cause changes in the, your urinary tract and make you more vulnerable to infection. And this is when women get recurrent urinary tract infections, although it's not the only time. Um, women at other times in their life may get recurrent urinary tract infections as well. Sometimes they need a little bit of localized estrogen um, to help that. And also drinking lots of water, um, also cutting out bladder irritants like caffeine and wine and strawberry and chocolate and everything that is good that we love is bad, can be bad. Citrus, um, spicy foods, tomatoes, all those kinds of things can irritate the bladder and may lead to urinary tract infections. There are certainly complications of urinary tract infections. As I mentioned, one of them having recurrent urinary tract infections or kidney damage. I'm so worried about that. Um, that I may actually get another stone because a urinary tract infection can be indicative of a stone. And so, especially depending on the type of, um, I was actually running a, a 10K the, the night before. I was, you know, had everything laid out, <laughs> ready to go. And about two o'clock in the morning, woke up with just excruciating back pain and a urinary tract infection and also ended up having that kidney stone. Um, but I was like, just living through the pain because I was going to run <laughs> in that race. I, I just thought this is going to pass. This is a kidney stone. It's going to pass. Anyway, no, I went to emerge and I didn't leave that hospital for eight nights. And then I actually had to be readmitted. I mean, it was brutal. I had ended up having to have stents in my ureters. I, I think of myself as a healthy person, but <laughs> tonight I think I've had everything that we're talking about. Um, nonetheless, uh, women who are pregnant, um, also have an increased risk of, um, of getting urinary tract infections. But the biggest thing, especially for women over the age of 65 is a woman can get sepsis, which is a potentially life-threatening complication of an infection. So it's an overwhelming infection of your entire body, especially if the infection works its way up your urinary tract to your ureters, to your kidneys. So you want to you want to drink plenty of fluids, especially water, because drinking water helps to dilute your urine, and that helps you to void more frequently, and it also is less irritating to your bladder. Drink cranberry juice, but there's not really enough studies um, that are, make this conclusive. But there's PACs in certain types in, in cranberries um, that may help to prevent that and may may help to make the bladder wall healthier. As I mentioned, white from front to back always and wash your hands after, you know, sometimes I wash my hands before I go to the bathroom. <laughs> I'm so obsessive. Um, you what you may want to empty your bladder soon after alcohol, uh, after intercourse and after alcohol, <laughs> both of them, um, because that will help to dilute the alcohol and it will also help to flush out bacteria after intercourse. And potentially irritating feminine products can also contribute to potential urinary tract infections. So like deodorant sprays or feminine products, douches, powders, that kind of thing in the genital area, a hundred percent no, no. And, you know, you might want to change your birth control method as well. Um, but you know, the treatment for, um, UTI and you know what, you don't even, you can actually have a UTI diagnosed over telehealth. You don't actually need to have a dipstick done, but you know, you can have your urine analyzed if you like. Um, but, and also they'll do a, a culture and sensitivity to see what uh, antibiotics the bacteria is sensitive to. 
Um, and so it just basically lets you know what bacteria are causing your infection and which medications will be the most effective. Some people who have recurrent urinary tract infections and it's not associated with low estrogen levels, you know, they may need to actually have a CT scan or an MRI, so further investigation or have a scope inside. The treatment typically is antibiotics, um, some like Bactrim and Septra, uh, Monurol is a, it's a one-timer, um, Macrodantin, Macrobid, Keflex, Kefirac, Kefirexone is another um, treatment. These are the fluoroquinolones um, medications like ciprofloxacin or cipro, levofloxacin. Um, they're not typically recommended for simple UTIs because there's risks associated with these. Um, and you want to look at the risks associated with the medication that you have been prescribed. Um, and you know what? In about two days after being on an antibiotic, things will clear up. But, you know, you don't want to be on an antibiotic chronically or over the long term. Sometimes people need to take low-dose antibiotics daily. A lot of people with spinal cord injury or other neurological disorders can are at greater risk as well for urinary tract infections. Um, But, you know, very important to um, have this treated. as I, as I mentioned, you, a lot of people who have had urinary tract infections know in the past, know that they have a, um, a urinary tract infection. So it can be treated fairly quickly. And if you have a severe UTI, you actually may need IV antibiotics. So that would require being treated in the hospital. Um, typically sometimes it can be done on an outpatient basis, but nonetheless, very important, very important medical condition that can affect both women and men and something that needs to be treated, especially if you are a woman over the age of 65 and you are not on localized estrogen therapy. If you have vaginal dryness, that's a good idea. It's a good idea to go and speak to your doctor about that because vaginal dryness not only can lead to painful sex, it can lead to, or dyspareunia, it can lead to low sexual desire as well. And urinary tract infections, we call the condition genitourinary syndrome of menopause or GSM. So it's important to get that treated. And low-dose localized estrogen therapy is the treatment of choice really for that. Um, But it's a conversation you need to have with your physician. And the two of you can can decide because, you know, you might be okay with a hormone-free personal moisturizer that will actually help to prevent painful sex or dyspareunia. Um, And also the moisturization will help uh, to prevent urinary tract infection as well. The bottom line is, you know, early prevention and early diagnosis, as with anything, prevention, early diagnosis, and early treatment as well. So um, if you are a woman after menopause and you're getting recurrent urinary tract infections, you may want to go to your doctor and speak to them about low-dose localized estrogen therapy. It comes in the form of a cream or a ring. There's also a tablet, but to be honest with you, the tablet is too low of a dose. So I wouldn't recommend that one. Anyway, feel free to email me any of those personal private questions, nursetalk at hotmail.com. You got questions, she's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I am sure many of you out there have gotten 
headaches, and they are a big annoyance, which is why I am grateful to have my next guest on the program. Because did you know that June was Migraine Awareness Month? Dr. Dion Lowe joins me on the phone. He's a headache specialist from Calgary, Alberta. Good evening, Dr. Lowe. Good evening, Maureen. A real pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for joining the program because an estimated 2.7 million Canadians are living with migraines. What exactly is a migraine, Dr. Lowe? The uh, silent storm, as some people call it, is typically a genetic disease, note not disorder, which is characterized by recurrent attacks of head pain. Uh, these uh, painful events are often accompanied by sensory sensitivity to light, sound, or smell, and patients may also actually have nausea with these attacks too. And uh, we'll get to triggers in a little bit, but but I gather this is a neurological disease, the way that you describe describe it. And and how intense can the pain be? The pain can be excruciating. Um, we have a pain score from 0 to 10, the 11-point BAS score, and it's not unusual for patients having a severe attack to get up to 10, which is what we call a call an ambulance pain level. Wow. And, and a normal headache might last a few hours. It might be relieved by you know, acetaminophen. Um, but how long can a migraine last? Classically, the attack uh, has to be at least four hours long and typically will uh, last as long as 72 hours. But there is a condition called status migranosis where it could go on for days longer than that. I mean, it, it gives me a headache thinking about it. What are some of the symptoms of, of migraine? The symptoms are typically headache. Um, it may have, you may have an aura, which is present in about 20 to 25% of individuals only. So it's not a prerequisite for the diagnosis. And that could be visual, sensory, motor. And as we were mentioning earlier, nausea, photophobia, light sensitivity, these are very typical uh, presenting symptoms of a migraine. And, and does this affect men equally as it affects women? Typically, one in five women will get migraine at some point, whereas it's one in 15 males. So women get this three times as frequently as men. Having said that, looking at it from the, uh, the opposite perspective, one in four migraineurs are men, and uh, fewer than half of them get correctly diagnosed. So we've given them a specific uh, term, which is mangrains, men who suffer from migraines. Oh, wow. I didn't, I did not realize that at all. Um, now you said it's one in five women is, does that have to do with hormones? Absolutely. And so that is, so that brings me to the next question. Is it more likely to occur in adolescence and then perimenopause, menopause, those times in life? Yes, you're absolutely correct. It often starts in uh, pre-pubescence or adolescence and um, is uh, typically during one's fertile years. And then there's another bimodal peak around uh, perimenopause 
when there's tremendous volatility in your uh, hormonal levels. And, and to what do you attribute men's migraines or mengraines? I like the I like the term. <laughs> <laughs> men, um, men and women share a common abnormality in the uh, pathophysiology or the underpinning of the migraine attack. It's just that the hormonal fluctuations, especially a drop in estrogen uh, with women, will just lower the threshold for attacks. And the um, disorder that is common to both men and women is that there is abnormal processing and perception of sensory inputs such as light, sound, and smell. And um, many patients will experience these sensory sensitivities between migraine attacks, which does suggest migraineurs are wired differently or have altered neurobiology. I see. Now, are there certain triggers for, and I'm going to get personal here, <laughs> are there certain triggers for <laughs> migraines? <laughs> because I've never been diagnosed, and, I, and I'm not looking for a diagnosis over the airwaves, but if you'll give me one, I'll take it. <laughs> but what are the triggers for migraines? We classify triggers into internal and external triggers, endogenous or exogenous. So an endogenous trigger might be exactly what you were talking about before, such as a menstrual cycle. could be something like caffeine, MSG, and um, it is difficult to tease out individual triggers and Sometimes patients require multiple triggers to summate or add up before they will get a migraine. Weather has been cited as an example, red wine, etc. The list is endless. But people tend to identify strong triggers fairly early on, especially if they can keep a headache diary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you mentioned red wine. Um, is it red wine specifically or is it all alcohol? It's a bit of both. It can be just alcohol on its own, can provoke a headache. Um, a migraine in general could be a cluster headache, but specific congeners or additives to different uh, alcohol beverages may provoke the attack. Interesting, because I have a severe, what I've always just thought was an allergy to alcohol, where if I... Um, Honestly, I can have a quarter of a glass of wine and I will have a headache the next day, kind of just a, a low grade, you know, aching headache for the entire day. It may last into the next day. Now, if I have more than that quarter, <laughs> a glass of wine, <laughs> I may, <laughs> that may last <laughs> two days, but it could be that hence I really don't have much more than a quarter of a glass of wine. <laughs> um but it literally will send me to bed. I don't have photophobia, but I can get nasal congestion, headache, nasal congestion, you know, ear, maybe almost even phonophobia, nausea, vomiting. I have a craving for, um, if I don't have the vomiting, craving for bacon and eggs, <laughs> Coca-Cola, McDonald's, <laughs> French fries, <laughs> things I don't normally eat. 
And then I have to go to sleep and wake up again. And it, it's this whole rigmarole that just doesn't make life worth living, quite frankly. <laughs> uh, hence, yeah. I am, you know, I have to rely on myself at being fun at a party. <laughs> so <laughs> it dawned on me, <laughs> which is not great. <laughs> People will say to me, oh, do you not like that feeling of alcohol? I'm like, no, I love that feeling. Are you kidding? <laughs> I, just, I just can't tolerate it. Um, but. I've seen other people ask people, you know, do you, I always thought it was a hangover. Do you get a hangover? Do you get a hangover? And they all said, no, they didn't <laughs> drinking much mm. more than I ever would. And, um, but I've seen other people who have, you know, gone to bed with a severe headache after drinking, you know, one, one drink. Mm -hmm. And they, they then said they had migraines. And I, I'm just curious, could mine be a migraine triggered by alcohol? You're a superb case study for us for the uh, discussion. <laughs> I'm in. Because you're in. You are an absolutely classic migraine sufferer. And wow. um, there's a very easy way to figure out if you have a migraine. You could go to the International Classification of Headache Disorders, which is uh, very complex. It's got a whole page on how to diagnose a migraine. Uh, it has all the criteria. But Dr. Lipton was able to distill out or tease out the core elements of that uh, uh, page from uh, ICHD3, and it's called PIN the Diagnosis, the mnemonic, P-I-N. So it's a diagnostic triangle. On the one upslope is photophobia or light sensitivity. The other slope of the um, triangle is impairment, such as in your case where you were in bed. And then nausea would be the base of the triangle. So all you need is to have two of these three elements, and you have a 90-plus percent chance of having migraine. If you have all three wow. of them, it's essentially 100%. Dr. Dion Lowe is my guest. He is a headache specialist and, and has just diagnosed my migraines, and that's what we are talking about. Migraine Awareness Month is the month of June, and an estimated 2.7 million Canadians are living with migraine, which is migraines, which is a complex neurological disease that can last between four and 72 hours. It can cause you to eat or crave bacon and eggs and other things like that. Um, anyway, this, the pain can be significant from moderate to severe, and also it results in reduced quality of life, and there is a stigma associated with it. Dr. Lowe, thanks for staying on the line. And uh, can you talk to me? You don't think about people who have a headache are going to be stigmatized. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, sadly, people with, uh, with diseases that aren't overtly obvious are often thought of as malingerers or fakers. And that's one of the reasons I called it the silent storm at the very beginning, because there's no ECG for migraine. There's no CAT scan that can diagnose it. And so all you have to rely on software. And so, unfortunately, employees are not always that sympathetic. And then the other factor is that we have Superman syndromes in the sense that we don't want to be perceived as weak or incompetent or incapable at at work, and so we tend to bottle these things up and not mention them to anybody. This is even more pronounced among men who are notoriously, uh, infamously secretive about their health conditions.
Absolutely. Living in denial. But the World Health Organization mm-hmm. ranked migraine as the second cause of years lived with disability in the world and the first cause in people under the age of 50. That is shocking. Mm-hmm. I am so surprised at that. So um, we know some of you've, you've reviewed some of the symptoms and how to diagnose. How do people get treatment for migraines? What can people do? I mean, I've seen people suffer and now myself included. <laughs> um, so I, we know my treatment, don't drink alcohol. Um, and, but for those others out there who have other triggers, endogenous or exogenous, as you mentioned, what are some of the treatments? There is a treatment triangle, just as there is a diagnostic triangle. And the one upslope is acute headache management. The other slope is prevention. And the base of the triangle is lifestyle changes. And um, the acute interventions need to be taken early. You want to intercept the transition between quiescence and the barrel of dynamite, if you were. And um, there's a variety of options for that. And uh, similarly, for prevention, we have a whole host of traditional but now very exciting new interventions. And then the lifestyle changes are key. I always tell patients I'll do 100% or 50%, which implies they have to do a lot of work themselves. For example, optimizing sleep, caffeine, and in your case, alcohol intake, etc. And if you wish, we can go into specific treatments, but... Um, Generally, that is the approach, and patients should ask their physicians for treatments for the acute attack, for prevention if they get um, frequent attacks, what the lifestyle changes should be um, uh, to minimize the uh, migraines. You want to reduce the number of ignition points, so to speak. And when you mentioned the acute treatment, and we just have a couple minutes left, uh, I imagine that is specific mm-hmm. medications that target uh, particular areas in the brain? That's right. And you can use over-the-counter medication for a less severe attack, such as anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen or naproxen. But for a more severe attack, you'd probably want to use a tryptan like sumatriptan, Zolmetriptan, etc. And these are drugs that have their high velocity agents, but of short duration, which is why you do need the prevention uh, tools, uh, which are uh, lower velocity, but longer duration, um, if uh, you have four or more attacks per month. Wow. I mean, that would be very debilitating for somebody to live with. And, and you know, mine is preventable, fortunately, um, but I do have yes. tremendous empathy for people who suffer that. I forgot to mention the meds that I take. <laughs> After that, it's like Tylenol, <laughs> Tylenol Advil, Neocitran, Tylenol with codeine. <laughs> it's brutal. And <laughs> it is not worth it for me. But I don't recommend you take the Neocitran or the Tylenol with codeine. <laughs> Listen to what the doctor yeah. says. Um well, yeah. Dr. Lowe, you've been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for joining me on the program and to talk about this very important medical condition. And uh, and again, to those of you listening out there who are experiencing migraines, um, we encourage you to share your experience using the hashtag UncoverMigraine because we need to 
get this dialogue going and, and foster very meaningful dialogue. I've learned a tremendous amount tonight, Dr. Lowe. Thank you so much. Thank you. And good luck for all the patients out there. Oh, thank you so much. Really appreciate that. Well, sense of relief for me and never will have another glass of wine in my life. <laughs> Sometimes I can have a cocktail at four o'clock in the afternoon, I will say, but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> maybe I need more. Maybe I need a psychiatrist. Anyway, Dr. Lowe, thank you very yeah. much for joining the program tonight. My pleasure. And make sure you get stronger drugs than the over-the-counter ones for yourself. Yes, <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Now you're talking. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. We're going right. to shift you. gears now. You're very welcome. Now, if you were listening in the previous segment, we were talking about headaches, but it was related a little bit to the liver. <laughs> Obviously, you learned that I can't drink alcohol. Um, but this next subject that we're talking about is not necessarily related to alcohol, but it is related to the liver. Five years ago, Canada made a promise to support the word World Health Organization's goal of, of eliminating hepatitis C as a public health threat by 2030. Since that time, there have been strides made to reach the goal. The membership of Action Hepatitis Canada created the progress report outlining metrics on which to evaluate progress in Canada. Joining me on the line is Dr. Sophia Bartlett. She is a senior scientist for STI and bloodborne viruses at the British Columbia CDC. Good evening, Dr. Bartlett. Thanks for joining me. Hi, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. So um, this, this is a lofty goal, I would imagine, to eliminate Hepatitis C is a public health threat by 2030. But uh, for the listeners, if you wouldn't mind explaining what hepatitis C is. Hepatitis C is a virus. It's a blood-borne virus. So that means that it's transmitted through blood-to-blood contact. And is so in what, what examples, what, what, um, how would somebody be, have a blood-to-blood exposure? So in Canada, there are two sort of main groups in the population who have been exposed to hepatitis C and who are affected by this virus. Um, The first group are people who are born between 1945 and 1965. That's usually termed the baby boomer birth cohort. Uh, And people who were born in that birth cohort might have been exposed to hepatitis B through um, injections. So some of the um, very early vaccination campaigns that um, Mm. rolled out across North America, um, there may have been... um, syringes that were reused or things like that. So uh, people may have had blood-to-blood contact and been exposed to hepatitis C. There was also um, blood transfusions. So before hepatitis C was discovered, when the blood supply wasn't being screened adequately, um, or sort of other things like dental procedures. Um, We also have a number of people in Canada who were not born here, like myself, and so they may have been exposed to hepatitis C um, through other medical procedures in uh, the country that they originally came from. Um, and then the other group in Canada who are affected by hepatitis C is people who have used injection drugs. So where people are um, using drugs and they don't have access to harm reduction supplies um, and they're sharing or reusing drug injection equipment, 
this is a major risk factor for hepatitis C transmission. And so we see the prevalence of hepatitis C infection among people who have injected drugs um, quite high, up to 10%, and in some cases up to 30% of people who've injected drugs in Canada are exposed to hepatitis C virus. Wow. And what are some of the symptoms of hepatitis C? Well, so hepatitis C is actually um, quite a silent virus. So often the symptoms are nonspecific. Um, they might be things that you could confuse with other types of um, illnesses. So often people who have um, first been exposed to the virus, they might actually have um, fever or malaise, so they just feel a little bit tired. Um, in some cases, people do have jaundice or those classical sort of um, liver symptoms. Uh, they may have yellowing of the skin or yellowing of the eyes, uh, but it's really um, quite a small fraction of people that actually have those specific symptoms. Most people uh, will actually be able to um, really not notice the symptoms that they have from hepatitis C infection. And over time, um, those symptoms, even as your liver is being damaged by the virus, those symptoms can be very, very difficult to recognize. Well, I, I can imagine because a lot of people can have uh, those symptoms um, without realizing there's a diagnosis. So how are people diagnosed? And my other question is, can some people ha be asymptomatic or feel like they're asymptomatic and have hepatitis C? Yes. Yes, we absolutely see a lot of asymptomatic hepatitis C infection in Canada. And, and what, that's one of the reasons why um, in British Columbia, our hepatitis testing guidelines recommend that all people born between 1945 and 1965 have a hepatitis C test at once in their lifetime. So we call that uh, baby boomer cohort screening. So that means mm -hmm. that uh, if, you, if you're born between those years and you don't know if you've ever been tested for hepatitis C, you should ask your family doctor about that. Uh, and then we also recommend um, routine or regular screening for people who have other risk factors. So uh, if somebody has been uh, injecting drugs or uh, may have had any other type of unsafe medical procedure or things like um, home backyard tattoos, we recommend that those people are tested at least once a year where the risk factors are present. Uh, because testing is the only way to know for sure if you have a hepatitis C infection. So you mentioned the tattoos, but I don't think I heard you. Did you say home tattoos or? Yes, we have. We do see uh, because of um, the reuse of tattooing equipment in some cases, uh, that is a risk factor for hepatitis C transmission. Uh, and the sort of rise in popularity of things like stick and poke tattoos where people might be tattooing themselves, this could be a risk oh. for hepatitis C transmission. So people should always make sure that um, any tattooing equipment is sterile and that it's coming out of a package um, and really going to reputable tattoo um, parlors and salons. Yeah, I often wondered if tattoo artists were trained in sterile technique. I'm not sure they are. <laughs> uh, there are standards for the um, sterilization of tattoo equipment and they, they do get audited by um, oh, good. the health department. Um, yeah, so as long as you're going to a reputable tattoo parlor, you can be um, pretty confident that uh, they, there's not going to be any risk of hepatitis C transmission. But if you have ever had a tattoo in a place that you thought might not have necessarily been up to scratch, then it's worth speaking to a, your family doctor about that and, and getting tested for hepatitis C. That's great advice since tattoos are so popular today.
Um, yes. So hepatitis C damages the liver, and, and I would imagine that's why um, there is a call to eliminate hepatitis C virus in Canada. Um, what are some of the things that can happen? What are some of the outcomes from a, a hepatitis C infection? Yeah, so uh, hepatitis C is a, a virus that, prim- that affects the liver primarily. There are some other um, what we call extrahepatic manifestations as a result of hepatitis C. So um, things like kidney disease um, and other types of um, issues that can be related to the liver, such as type 2 diabetes, can result from hepatitis C infection. But primarily what's happening with this virus is that it's damaging the cells within your liver, the hepatocytes, and there's chronic inflammation in the liver. And over time, what this does is it builds up scar tissue in the liver, uh, and this is what's known as fibrosis. And fibrosis can progress over time to cirrhosis. Uh, And this is where we actually start to see the function of the liver being impaired. So your liver is not able to process the blood the way that it should. And we start to see um, other types of things happening, such as uh, the veins in the liver getting enlarged. Um, And this is where we can see um, liver failure eventually occur. So hepatitis C infection is actually a major cause of liver failure globally and within Canada. Um, And then the other thing that can happen is cancer. So primary liver cancer or hepatocellular carcinoma um, is caused by hepatitis C infection. And it, it, hepatitis C is one of the major causes of hepatocellular carcinoma. Dr. Sophia Bartlett, Senior Scientist for STI and Bloodborne Viruses at the BCCDC, is my guest. We are talking hepatitis C. And uh, thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Bartlett. Now, this is... Um, uh, there's a goal to reduce hepatitis C in Canada by the year 2030, but you have a very personal reason for doing that. Would you like to share your story with the listeners? Yeah, so my dad actually had hepatitis C infection. He had treatment for hepatitis C in 2016. So there's actually um, some really amazing medication uh, for hepatitis C. These are medications that were developed um, only recently in the past 10 years, uh, and they're actually exciting because they're curative. So there's very few chronic viral infections that we're actually able to cure. Hepatitis C is one of them. And so Dad actually was able to clear his hepatitis C infection, but unfortunately, because he'd been living with that infection for quite a while, he already had some damage to his liver. And at the end of last year, we found out that he actually had liver cancer. Luckily, it was detected early because he was getting checks every six months for people who've had hepatitis C infection and had damage to their liver. Even after they've achieved cure, they still do need to get checks every six months to monitor for the progression to liver cancer. And because of finding it early, he was able to have surgery in January and he's actually now cured from that cancer um, and he's in really great health now. But it, it means for me that I think all the time about all of the other people out there who have hepatitis C infection and haven't been cured yet or um, are still at risk of developing liver cancer. I, I can imagine. I, um, that, that's wonderful about your father. That's incredible. People are probably wondering out there um, that, you know, what kind of surgery he had because this is a liver. But can livers be operated on? Yes. 
so the good news is is that if a primary liver tumor is actually detected early, usually they can resect, which means to cut out that part of the liver. And the liver is one of the only organs that can regrow itself. Um, your skin can regrow and, and your liver can regrow. And, and um, that's actually one of the reasons why um, actually curing hepatitis C and preventing those liver cancers is possible because even when they do occur in the early stages, we can cut that part out and the liver will regrow. And, and what progress, uh, we talked a little bit earlier about the progress report. Um, what progress has been made on eliminating or on the goal toward eliminating um, hep C by 2030? Yeah, it's a really good question. So the first thing is those medications that I just mentioned. So they're called direct acting antiviral drugs or DAAs for short. Um, and they were listed um, in Canada in 2016 um, or the new, sorry, I should say the, the most recent versions of the medications, there's actually been multiple generations of these medications coming out. And we're now at the point where um, these medications are pangenotypic, which means it doesn't matter which um, strain of the virus someone has, the medication will work on all of those strains. Um, and after those medications became available, we've seen uh, quite a lot of uptake. So thousands and thousands of people across Canada being treated for hepatitis C and being cured of the infection. Uh, we've also seen um, in British Columbia, we've seen changes to the way that testing is done. So we're actually able um, to both screen and confirm the infection in one step. Previously, it took multiple visits for people um, coming into the doctor to actually be diagnosed with the infection. Um, and we're seeing laboratories across the provinces in Canada actually implementing this one-step um, testing algorithm, which means that people can be diagnosed and linked to care even faster, which is fantastic. Um, we've also got uh, changes to viral hepatitis testing guidelines. As I mentioned before, in British Columbia, we recommend that people born between 1945 and 1965 um, are all tested for hepatitis C infection. Um, and other changes to the guidelines for the other viral hepatitis, um, or I should say plural hepatitis, <laughs> um, so hepatitis B as well. Um, we recommend that people who were born in hepatitis B endemic countries or hepatitis C endemic countries, that they're also tested for the infection. Often these infections aren't part of immigration screening medicals, so people often aren't tested for them, and it, it's really important that family doctors are aware of these new um, hepatitis testing guidelines and actually are screening their patients um, for these infections because they aren't often presenting with symptoms. So it's really important to be screening people. We've seen um, a lot of progress in Canada towards hepatitis elimination. Um, and at, at the end of 2020, it did look like Canada was on track to um, meet that 2030 elimination target. But of course, the COVID-19 pandemic happened and right. now, it's, yeah, it looks like um, it, it may have put some things off track. There's sort of two main reasons why the COVID-19 pandemic probably has affected our progress towards hepatitis elimination. The first one was all of the disruptions to healthcare. So we saw in a lot of situations that um, there was services being closed or 
um, only seeing urgent patients. Um, and so that will have actually pushed waiting lists out. And um, the other thing that we saw was that people's health-seeking behaviours changed over the past two years because in a lot of cases they were actually worried about going into sort of healthcare settings because they could be exposed to COVID-19. And then the other thing is that uh, we saw people not wanting to put more strain on the healthcare system. They thought, I'm not right. really that sick, so I, I don't need to seek care right now. I'll stay away so that the healthcare system can look after other people. And all of those factors combined have meant that we've seen hepatitis C testi testing and treatment numbers drop, especially in 2021. Um, and so now we actually need more than ever try and um, sort of reinvigorate our efforts with hepatitis C um, screening and linkage to care. Well, Dr. Bartlett, thank you so much. It's great information. I wish you all the best of luck in eliminating hepatitis C for all Canadians who are living with that disease today. And best of luck to your dad as well. Thank you so much. Take care. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.